Hi, Christy from the Rub the Wrong Way podcast here. I just wanted to let you guys know that on the 7th and 8th of October this year, 2016, I will be speaking at We Are Podcast. This is Australia's premier podcasting conference. Um, And I get to speak at it. Ha! It's so amazing. Um, So I'm really pumped and I would really love to see anyone out there who is super keen on starting their own show or meeting a bunch of influencers who have their own podcasts, learning more about this kind of fun, exciting medium um, and where it's going and how you can leverage it to increase your business and just be more awesome at life generally. So if you are keen to get a ticket and you would love and you really want to come, I would love to see you there. All you need to do is visit the website, which is wearepodcast.com slash 2016. When you purchase your ticket, put in this unique code, which is Christy, spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-E-M, M for Melling. Put in that code and you will receive 25% off your ticket. That's an amazing discount and I would seriously love to see anyone from my show there. That would be so cool. Please come up to the Gold Coast, um, come and meet a whole bunch of really cool podcasters and come and hang out with me. That would be great. Awesome. Welcome to Rub the Wrong Way, a podcast for massage professionals. Each week, we undrape the taboo topics of massage therapy life, go deep on industry issues, and help you discover practice-building tips and tricks from industry experts. Grab your laundry basket and join your host, Christy Melling, as we strip down, bear all, and help you get rubbed the right way. Hit the big red record button. Okay. Sean Brewster. Hi. Welcome to the Rub to the Wrong Way podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really cool to see you and to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Now, tell me a little bit about you. Let's go to your origin story. How did you get into this crazy massage business? When did it start? Do you like what's your when did the love affair with bodies begin? Sure. Uh, I guess it probably started when I was about 12, funnily enough. I got into martial arts at the age of 12. And it was something I was just fascinated by. I was fascinated by the, the way the body worked and, and how it didn't work when people hit you in certain ways. And, and also Oriental, so Japanese culture in particular, and all of that kind of combined to make me want to find out more about the human body in particular and um, some of the origins of the martial arts, of course, as well. And, and then from there, I got a really, um, I got a great mentor, I guess, through my martial arts who encouraged me and, and tried to push me to learn more and do more. And I think I was about 15 when I went first manual therapy course, which was a version of Bowen therapy, which most people would know. Um, I think I was the youngest person ever to do this course, and I was being taught all sorts of things that you probably shouldn't teach a 15-year-old at that time. But I managed to get through that course and went on to the next course and and then did that and then did Reiki from there. I I guess I I grew up in a small country town, so I just kind of did whatever was available to me at that time. And had to travel a little bit to get to some workshops, but was pretty much left high school, uh, year 12, went to study in Melbourne, uh, moved to Melbourne, and then I uh, was at, the, at one college for about three and a half years studying there, and then um, was just hooked on massage from that point, did also study reflexology and oriental massage. Uh, left that college, went in to do some private practice and teaching martial arts at that point, combining both, that was the plan, mm-hmm. and then got offered a role doing some teaching at the ripe old age of 21. Um, by one of my lecturers who was leaving the college and said, I think you'd be good at this, come and give it a go. So I, 
I applied for the job and luckily they um, they were hiring and I was it was about two weeks before the start of semester so they either hired me or or had no teacher. So the timing was perfect. So I got my... I'm your only choice. That was exactly what it was. So I, I fell into that um, at the perfect time and already was teaching martial arts and love that. So I thought this is going to be the perfect compliment. I can do the martial arts, I can work clinically and I can teach all in one go. And, and that has been the balance ever since. So I've, I've since moved away from martial arts a few years ago, um, but started a, a school with a friend of mine who's he's running that full-time now. It's going great guns and um, have been practicing clinically since I was about 20, I guess, uh, now 37, um, and have been teaching since I was a bit, yeah, 21, 22. Wow. That's a really, then... <laughs> really, like it's a phenomenal rise. Like, I mean, to know at such a young age that you wanted to get into particularly manual therapy is, mm. I think a lot of people would be envious of that. Um, oh, I was very lucky, yeah. I know a lot, a lot of people I grew up with still um, now in their 30s, still don't know what they want to do with their life. So yeah. I was I was just lucky that I found something I was passionate about early and had a family and, and friends and everyone that supported me. So I chased that down. And then um, once I got into teaching, I realized that, yeah, I've, I've qualified with some certificates and, and I know some stuff, but there's so much more I don't know. So I got the opportunity to do a bachelor degree in musculoskeletal therapy, did that. Um, got some more opportunities to do some postgraduate degrees in higher education and, and exercise science and did those. Now I'm still studying. Um, latest course I'm doing is in business, so it's just something a little bit different. But awesome. I've always been fascinated by entrepreneurialism and other bits and pieces. So, kind of the journey goes on. Um, yeah, always learning something new. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's um, it's always really interesting because I don't think I mean you never stop learning really. Like even if you're in clinic or you know all of these things, you never really stop learning. But it sounds I mean you've accumulated a lot of letters after your name. I'm guessing. Yeah, well, the, the letters um, aren't anywhere near as interesting as the knowledge that comes with it. But someone someone recently said that I thought this was really kind of on topic was they said everything in life is either growing or it's dying. So we're either moving forwards or we're moving backwards. You can't actually stay still. So there's no there's no living thing on the planet that stops either growing or starts or or isn't dying. So I think if we're constantly trying to move towards more growth and more knowledge and more information and expanding then that's definitely the way to go otherwise we end up going backwards absolutely so tell me a little bit about um your private practice like are you working currently in private practice at the moment or? yeah yep yeah yep i've got a private practice on the mornington peninsula down in uh in melbourne victoria mm, so it's yeah. kind of a re regional area it's a nice little spot um, yeah. i'm right opposite the beach which is pretty cool um and i've got uh my uh, my focus in my clinical practice in the last few years i guess has become more geared towards my other passion which is long distance running so uh, ultra marathons uh, yes. I, I kind of have another business i've got a number of businesses one of them is in uh working with endurance athletes and coaching and, and education for endurance athletes so from that i've developed a bit of a niche in dealing with um with long distance runners because i've had pretty much all the running injuries you can get so i i've kind of developed a bit of an appreciation for that so an ability to be able to help people with it as well I think that there must be a lot of um, resilience that comes out of long distance running. And I think that that can play into a lot of different parts of like your business and, and all these sorts of things. Ha have you found that being a long distance runner has helped you like find some resilience in business and things like that? Without a doubt. Yeah. I think doing martial arts taught me that first. And then I applied that to the running, the mindset that comes with that to the running. And then that has then taught me that, yeah, there's kind of the only limitations we have are the ones we put on ourselves. So I kind of try to apply that to everything we do. 
You have been, you've got a lot of beautiful motivational quotes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I love to do for my, for my guests on my show is I like to give them a t-shirt at the end of the show that's got a oh, quote really? from their show, from the show oh. that they do on it. I already have, after only six minutes of audio, I'm like, oh, good, two quotes. Like, <laughs> you're like full. That's great. I love I'm it. Full of, I'm full of cliches. Wait right <laughs> till the end of the show. You'll have a dozen of them. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me tell me about Bruce's running because I know, I think this is one of your passions, isn't it? Like this is, yeah. uh, this is the passion project. Let's talk a little bit about how you're mixing the manual therapy and all of that kind of stuff into the endurance running. How does that work? Yeah. So a friend of mine who I've run with for years, uh, he and I had been kind of throwing some ideas around for uh, quite a while. And then we came up with this idea that he's, I guess his background is in nutrition. Um, he's not a qualified nutritionist, but I think he'd know more about nutrition than any qualified nutritionist that I know. He's just studied it all his life and just passionate about it. He likes Obviously, food. He likes food. Um, his ex- he had an interesting backstory just really quickly. His father died pretty much of poor nutrition. So that was the motivating factor from him. He was heading that direction as well. Wow. So he used that to kind of like, I'm just going to get educated. I'm going to learn everything. So he did. So he's brilliant at that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's what uh, I'm to be like, yeah, I'm, I think I'm just going to eat good. Yeah. <laughs> he took it a few steps further, but yeah. So he's, he's one of the healthiest guys I know. And then, um, and obviously my background's in the manual therapies and exercise therapies. So we decided we'd, we joined forces and then combine our experiences and knowledge around running stupidly long distances and then trying to bring that stuff to the table and help other people try and do the same thing. So we started a blog and we wrote, oh, I don't know how many hundred articles. We were putting out two articles a week there for a number of years and, and that developed a bit of a following. And then from there, we got asked to speak at some co- at conferences and bits and pieces. And, and now most of what we do is um, consulting. I do some running um, coaching as well for athletes. And then uh, we just yeah produce educational material to help people get more into their bodies pretty much. That's fantastic. I remember listening to... Um I think it was Perry Nicholson's podcast, the Stop Chasing Pain podcast, and he was speaking with a guy about running. And I'm not a runner. Like, if you see me running, run as well because there's something <laughs> Something's chasing me. me. <laughs> like, the zombies are coming. No. <laughs> and so I've always, I've always had that weird mindset of people that say, "Don't run. It's really bad for you." Like, I, I always had this weird like, and and it rang true for me because I was like. When I run, my body literally cries. Like I get to the end of a run and I'm like, why did I do this? <laughs> Whose stupid idea was Whose this? Whose stupid idea was this? To run yeah. anyway. And then I listened to this show. I can't remember the name of the guy. And I'll, I will look back for the show notes and try and find a link, a link to the podcast. But the guy was mm. talking about how we are literally built to run. Oh, definitely. Like our bodies, we have this, you know, we have this amazing knuckle in the back of our head. That means our mm-hmm. head stays stationary while we're running. And I was like... Damn it! <laughs> I still don't run anywhere. Like, don't yeah. don't think that that anything has really changed for me. But what I do now is, I've managed to kind of filter that through into my clients and tell them they're like, oh, I want to go for a run. I'm like, okay, well then let's look at how we can best make you able to do that. And I, I yeah, I find, what do you? Why do you run long distances? I don't understand it. What are you running from? <laughs> We're running towards, better question. <laughs> so there's, you are right, the human body is designed to run. There's a huge amount of evolutionary science to kind of back that up. A great book um, by the name of uh, Born to Run by um, Christopher McDougall was kind of the, the book that kicked all this off a few years ago. Um, yeah, there's, there's heaps of science to back that up. And, yeah, there's so many things in the human body that are unique to humans that allow us to run like no other animal on the planet, which is pretty cool. Um, 
Why do I run? I think I run because it's the one thing that doesn't require other people, other equipment, or any other kind of resources that I can use to push myself to find out what I can do. So mentally, physically, it, it pushes me to my, what, what I think is my limit, and then I can find out where that actually is. That's why I go long, long as opposed to fast. I can't run fast. I'd, I'd much rather run for 24 hours than 24 seconds just because there's so much less pressure to do it quickly. <laughs> you can, 24 hours. Well, you can enter a 24-hour race and you can actually stop and have a meal if you want to. It's, kind of, it's, that, it's very relaxed. <laughs> cool. So how, where, what's the longest distance you've run? In one go? Well, just um, ever. Yeah. <laughs> longest, longest distance in one go is 100 miles. So that's miles. 100, 160Ks. Over some mountains. The longest event I've ever done was a 375 kilometer run, uh, which I did for charity a few years ago. That was over five days. Oh, that sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> so it was, was pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, like, and I'm guessing that really pushed you to your mental and physical limits, and like emotionally, it would have been like a massive drain. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. How do you yeah, prepare? The- How do you help prepare people for something like that? Um, that's a really good question. There's not a really good answer for that question. Unfortunately, if you, if I'm training somebody for a, a hundred mile run, I kind of in the preparation for it, I'll teach them how to hurt. So I teach mm-hmm. them how to, to find pain and then deal with it because they're going to get pain regardless. Mm-hmm. It's like there's, um, somebody, here you go. Ready for it? Are you ready? I'm ready. Another quote. You might want to write this one. This is a really good one. Okay. There's pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Oh, Eleven fifty-two. I think we can stop, <laughs> we can stop now. That's it. It's, it's golden. That applies to everything in life. Yeah. So it's you're always going to get pain, but you got to decide how you're going to deal with it. So a lot of what we do with the, like the really longest and stuff is teach people that, it's, that you're going to have pain. The most pain is okay. It's just warning bells. That's all. And then teach them what they can do with that. So how they can manage it. So a big part of that is for me when I'm trying to run a long way. If I'm not properly prepared for that particular event, is just being really efficient. So running with really good technique and really good form. Same for massage therapists. If you're trying to work for years and years and years and your technique's crappy, you're going to get injured. Same thing with running. So good form's really important. Obviously, there's a lot you can do with your training to make yourself fitter and stronger and more resilient. But at some point when you've been running for 35 hours over a mountain range, something's going to go pop, crack, tear. You know, something's going to go wrong. So then it's just about what you're going to do with it at that point to get to the end. That yeah, I, I I really find I know I don't have that kind of resilience. Like I know deep inside me, like I had a baby and I was still like I got to the end of it and I was like, This is BS like I'm oh, out. <laughs> like, you do you do have that, you just haven't found it yet. Or or how did you get through the how did you get through the labour there? That's painful, right? I think that was that was actually re- it was really funny because I I do like in pain and endurance a little bit. If anyone who knows me and anyone who's seen me um, any of my my photos will know that I'm actually quite heavily tattooed. Like I I yeah. have probably about mm, sixty or eighty hours of tattooing under my belt now. I can't remember. Right. I've got a full back and like all these things. And so that was how I got through labor because I was like, if you can endure getting your entire back tattooed. And you don't even get any good drugs at the end of that. You just all you get is like a bit of Savlon and a piece of <laughs> like cling wrap. <laughs> so you can you can have a baby. It's it's pretty exactly. It's a, it's a pretty similar kind of thing. And one of the techniques. It's really interesting because I was going to ask, do you have any children? 
I have three children. Yeah. Were you a good birth coach? Were you good at that? Because <laughs> I can imagine that you were like, come on, honey, touch the edges of the pain. You can do this. And she's like uh, punching you in the face. I'm probably much better at dealing with pain myself than helping others in the moment. Okay. Maybe not great with the whole sympathy thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah get over it. Like, but you, if you've been through that much tattooing and you've kind of learned to deal with that, it's the same thing applies to running. So if you, once you've had some level of pain and you figured out how to deal with it, then you can apply it to other things. My usual way same to concept. deal with it is candy. Does that work? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Having a lollipop, it's really, it's actually really helpful. <laughs> Distract the brain. <laughs> Distract your yeah. brain. You're like, oh, this is delicious. Ow, this still hurts. <laughs> so, so tell me about um, some of the courses that you run. Let's talk about those because I know that you're really into dry needling. Now, this is a, I, I think dry needling is a little, um, I think you sit on either one, you sit on one side of the fence or the other, whether you, you really either love it or you don't love it. And now yeah, I'd like yeah. to say that I'm sitting on the middle of the fence because I literally have zero idea about what dry needling does or how it works. I know it's a thing where you jab people with stuff and that sounds great to me, but yep. because of tattoos and whatnot, but <laughs> how, <laughs> let's talk about the dry needling courses and tell me a little bit about how that kind of came about and, and yeah. how, what you do. So let's talk about that. Okay. Those. So for me, the interest in dry needling came out of working with my therapist before I was qualified at that level. So I was doing some teaching at a college that taught my therapy and I saw a whole bunch of people using this technique and teaching it and sort of involved in, in um, some of the planning and stuff around that. And thought this stuff seems to work really well. So I started to investigate a little bit further and realized that it's just like any other modality that you use, it gets results where some things don't. It's more effective in some ways than others and so on. So I thought, okay, this would be something I'd like to learn. Learned it started using it, started getting really good results for some things, not for others, and realized that, yeah, it's a really effective tool for some things. Mm. So I uh, was then asked to do some dry needling teaching at one point after I'd been practicing for a while and done some extra study and started running some courses and thought, yeah, this is people are getting some good results. I was getting really good feedback from the people I taught um, and realized that my, my, I guess from the feedback, my teaching style seemed to suit that kind of modality, which can be seen by a lot of people as pretty high risk and fairly invasive and something that you've got to be pretty careful with and my, I guess my teaching style tends to be a little more relaxed and and comfortable and practical and hands-on and I try to explain things in a way that simplifies it for people so that when they go away they don't have a, a bunch of um, you know complex terms and ideas that they can't really comprehend but something they can actually use from day one so straight out of the course and into their clinic and start using so that's been pretty successful for me I've, I've run I've forgotten how many courses I've run now but lots over the, over the years at different levels, both introductory and advanced. Um, and then, so that's, I guess, one area of, of um, professional development I teach in. It's been probably the one I started with, but I've moved into a lot of others since then as well. So let's talk about those. Where have you moved into? Because I okay. primarily know you from sort of the dry needling side of things. So I'm really sure. I'm really curious to hear about what you've been doing since, since then. <laughs> since then? <laughs> Outside of that, we've got, so my partner and I, Caroline, we um, have a, a business called Continuing Education Australia, where we run these workshops both here in Victoria and, and interstate and eventually overseas. Um, but the, we've been doing, along with introductory dry needling courses, and uh, we, we do some masterclass courses in dry needling. So above and beyond the standard kind of advanced dry needling course, we specialise in things like sports and clinical applications and other bits and pieces. So there's those. We then developed another technique uh, a few years ago called functional release cupping, which has been probably our most popular course uh, since we started our, our business about 12 months ago. 
And the idea behind this one is that we combine um, myofascial cupping with the anatomy trains concept, so the idea of fascial and, and functional slings around the body, and functional movement. So as far as I'm aware, ours is the only course where you get the cups put on you, you to get up and move around with the cups on in very specific movements. So you get someone who's lost range of motion, for example, what's, um, let's say we've got a golfer who's having restriction at the end of his range of swing, so the swing phase of the golf club. So we look at where the fascial tension is in that range, put the cups on very specifically, follow a specific protocol. They go through that actual movement with the golf club, so swinging the golf club, gradually building up into the movement. We take the cups off, and hey presto, there's all this extra motion available to them. So it's, it'll blow your mind when you actually see it done because people have like, okay, here's my restriction. I can move this far. We'll put the cups on. They do this sequence of movements with the cups on in certain places, take it off, and there's not just a small amount of increase. It's actually a measurable increase. And then we'd have some procedures that follow that up to support that so it sticks. So that's the functional release cupping. Um, we've also done, we put together a tendinopathy workshop yeah. Uh, which is based off the back of some research that have come out from Australia's own tendinopathy gurus, Craig Purdom, Jill Cook, Ebony Rio, those guys, whose research, Ebony's research is just coming out now, uh, but we managed to get hold of a bunch of that early last year ahead of time and, and put together a, a workshop based around that stuff um, and some other protocols. And so that's been our, uh, we've run that once, we're going to be running that again in about a month's time. And what else do we do? We've got uh, tendinopathy. We've got a joint uh, mobilization with movement course, which is based around some of the work that um, Mulligan, Brian Mulligan did with mobilization belts. So using uh, belts to get leverage with joint mobilization. And oh, the list goes on. We've got about a dozen different courses, but they're probably some of our more popular ones. Those three sound amazing. Like, I mean, the dry needling kind of thing aside, because I do see that that could be really um, – Construed as high risk and obviously there is, you know, contamination issues and all the different things. But mm. I want to rewind to the functional release cupping. Sure. That sounds really cool. Like this is really, what, really yeah. cool. Like where did that like where did that idea come from? Like where uh, I kind of will do. We'll get that guy <laughs> get up off the table and have a shot. Like how it's did funny that come about? The, the way it started is I was I was actually teaching a class on on cupping years ago. And uh, one of the students in the room wasn't paying much attention to what we were doing. And I kind of looked over to him and he'd stuck a cup on the back of his shoulder. And he was standing up and he was just moving his arm to kind of feel the cup. And I looked at him and I, looked, I kind of looked sideways, my head tilted like a golden retriever does when it kind of thinks something. And I, and I said, what are you doing? And he just said, oh, it just feels tight, so I'm just moving. And I went, this is like a light bulb moment went off. And I went, oh, man, so it's like a whole paradigm of treatment exploded into my brain in that moment i come up with all these ideas and started thinking okay what else can i do with this and started using it the concept clinically in my own practice and then went looking for some evidence to support the the idea or the concept mm -hmm. so backed up with some science and then explored it and explored it and explored it and eventually turned it into a workshop which since the first time i ran it uh two or three years ago um i've changed it dramatically since then because i found other research to take my my concept in a different direction um, but now it's been pretty refined and, and pretty much every person that comes to the course comes away with um, something that they can use and get results with instantaneously. So it's, it's really dramatic, which is pretty cool. It's really interesting. I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day and we were talking about the, um, 
there's this fundamental uh, dichotomy, I guess, of this practice-based evidence versus evidence-based practice. Yeah, okay. And so it's really interesting because he was saying like he, you know, he would go into clinic and he would just kind of flow with what he was doing and he would just kind of try things out and he was like, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Like uh, it was all kind of a bit, you know, it was a bit hit and miss. Um, And it sounds like you kind of had that similar sort of concept. You were like you got the base idea and then you just kind of ran with it and played around with it and yeah. read more about it. And then you found evidence to kind of back up what you were seeing clinically. Yeah. How do you feel about this whole evidence-based practice versus practice-based evidence kind of thing? Because yeah. let's open that Pandora's box for a second sure. and see yeah. how that goes. Because got- you're, you're citing a lot of ev- like, you know, that you're kind of talking heaps about evidence and like all those kind of things. Mm. And I think we do need to work from that evidence base, but... Yeah, there's got to be a practicality to it that you can take back and use in the clinic. And it sounds like Absolutely. you're striking a really good balance there. Yeah, look, evidence-based practice is a is an area that I'm, I have some pretty strong ideas about. I've had lots of arguments with people about this, and I've, mainly because I think that we get too caught up in the science and the figures. So pretty much every great practitioner I've ever met and anyone that I talk to about their favorite practitioners, they don't do stuff that the evidence, that, that the science necessarily supports every time they've had usually huge amounts of experience lots and lots of clinical practice they've tested stuff out in their own and they get results almost always get results the great practitioners do and if we look at what they do some um, the evidence to support it's actually pretty few and far between um, but the science i think has to be there from a fundamental principle point of view so we have to have some kind of something to hang our hat on and say yes this is what i'm doing because xyz from there, you've got you'd, we're dealing with humans. There's no two humans on the planet that are exact. So obviously, we're going to have some variation in what we what we do and the way we apply things. But I think it's important that we kind of keep this curiosity about us as practitioners. And if the research says we do this for this problem, maybe the research isn't 100% accurate. Maybe in a, in five years' time, it's going to change. And in fact, the tendinopathy stuff that we we're talking about before, that research that that these guys are bringing out now. They pretty much turned around and said, look, what we told you five years ago, just ignore that. That was completely wrong. Sorry. Um, at, at the time, it was the best evidence that we had. And they would do things like eccentric loading on tendons and compression taping and all sorts of stuff that we know, now know tendons hate. hate it, look, the, it's unequivocal. We can't deny the fact that tendons hate the stuff that we used to do to it. And that was what the science told us to do. So now... Whoops. We've had to completely change. Like this, this textbooks on how to manage low back pain by experts overseas that run, you know, courses in universities and things. And and there was one uh, low back pain expert a few years ago who bought out a new textbook, and he pretty much um, publicly told everyone, "Go and burn my last textbook. It's it's rubbish. Sorry. Here's the new one. This is all much better." So, what we call evidence based practice might be relevant today. Yeah. But give it a month. Give it a year. Give it two years. It's probably going to turn on its 180 degrees. So I think we take. The science that makes sense to us, we apply clinical reasoning to it, and we test stuff. Yeah. And if we get results and there's no massive negative fallout and everything seems to be moving in a positive way, then, then go with that. I think that's the best approach. So it's almost like evolutionary-based practice because it's always like – Yeah, like it's – we're kind of always – evolving it it's kind of always growing and always changing and if the best part about anything to do with science and this is what i love is and i think it was tim Minchin that said you know 
if it's right, if it if if it says it's right, and I'll flip on a dime. Like I will absolutely yep. change my mind. Yes. Um, but until then, I'm not going to believe in tarot cards. But exactly. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? But it's it's just interesting because I really I, I see so many people getting caught up in this like almost this useless conversation. It's it's that kind of like oh, is it? It does it work? Does it not work? Does it da da da? It's like, well, have you tried it? Like, have you actually put it yeah, into yeah. practice? And I think that's the bit that people often miss is it's evidence based practice. Like, you've still got to yes. apply it to something for it to be useful. So, tell me about. Yeah, that. and you can take. So you, you can go. take all the science in the world and and apply it to with one person of science and another person can apply the science and get two different results because we're dealing with humans mm. and there's a huge amount of psychology. And neuroscience as well, and see people trust our practitioner. The practitioners is a massive part of it, and it doesn't matter how much science you have to back up what you're doing. If you've got no rapport, if you've got no connection, you get no result. So we've got to, yeah, I think we've just got to remember the human element, and then just, like I said before, get curious and, and try things. So tell me a little about the tendinopathy workshop, because that sounds really interesting, because I deal with tendinopathy a heap in my clinic. And yep. I'm super keen to kind of know a little bit more. So let's let's delve a little into kind of what you cover, maybe, or yeah, yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. Oh, longest time myself in clinical practice as well. I had pretty much a set a set of rules or guidelines that I would use for training tendons, which I thought worked quite well based on stuff I've read and other bits and pieces. And then I came across this research that said a lot of what we were doing gets results, but the results are fairly minuscule. So most of the manual therapy things that we do, and topical creams and ointments and um, other kind of modality-based things, produce 1% or 2% change in most tendinopathies. So if you put every possible manual therapy together that you could do and did them all on the one person, you'd probably get about 10 12% change. This is what the research shows, which makes us go, oh, crap, right? Like that's not ideal. But then we will look at exercise prescriptions, and it's more about loading. So it's not about trying to strengthen or stretch the tendons. In fact, tendons hate stretch, they discovered. It's more about trying to optimize load. So we take the loading that the tendons are being um, uh, put under, so whether it be running, walking, jumping, whatever your sport or activity might be, and we try to find the ideal amount of load for that person so we optimize it so that the body can then heal itself and move into a, a better state of, of function. With this particular research we're working from, there is really, really specific uh, recipes. There's two recipes in particular, one based around pain management, and I've used this myself on my own Achilles tendinopathy earlier this year, and it literally turns off the pain instantly. It's incredible. The other approach they use is one for rehabilitation, and it's about trying to rehabilitate the healthy part of the tendon. The tendon hasn't been affected by the, the injury itself, which before we were trying to heal the, the pathology, the lesion in the, in the tissue, now we realize that you can't actually heal that. In fact, it doesn't change much at all. So you target the healthy tissue with a very specific recipe for loading that as well. So there's, it's all about time under load. So we do specific repetitions and the amount of um, uh, and length, uh, sorry, length of time that you're holding certain contractions. So it's a real uh, um, recipe that we follow for both pain management and then rehabilitation of that tendon. So the workshop we do is largely based around lower limb tendon pathologies, which I think most most people present with, um, and because that's where most of the evidence has shown to be it's effective. Not to say that won't work on upper limb tendinopathies, there's just no evidence to support it yet. So we're still experimenting with that as an idea in the upper limbs. 
But I imagine that if you get the recipe, you know, if you're a smart enough person, you can modify a recipe. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, exactly. And so, yeah, like, again, it becomes, you know, practice-based evidence. So you're going to be able to take what you learn in a class and then potentially like, oh, okay, well, let's apply it to that yeah. or something like and, that. And that was the, the question was asked to Ebony Rio, who's the one that did most of the research around pain management for lower limb stuff. They said to her, how, about, how can we take this, um, this recipe and apply it to something like a supraspinatus tendinopathy? And she said, I oh, don't know. That, she basically shrugged her shoulders and says, I don't know. I it, it, don't know if it will work, can't say either way, because they haven't done the research to support it. But us as clinicians, if we take that recipe and test it, we know that it's not going to cause problems, that the, the recipe that you use won't cause more damage if it's applied correctly. So if we can apply it in the correct format to the upper limb and get results, then maybe we're maybe we can actually uh, produce the results that can support some of the research in further stuff. So I think um, there's scope for it still. That's really interesting because, I mean, yeah, like so much tendinopathy now, like so many people coming in with, you know, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendon stuff and you know, all these sorts of things. And I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to actually read more about or, you know, find out more about that kind of thing because I have, I have one client in my brain who I'm like, oh, my God, she needs this so bad. Yeah. <laughs> she, she ripped open her her whole like she basically ripped open her rolling whole ankle like five years ago and she should have had surgery on it and then didn't right she basically they waited um 12 months to do surgery on it and nobody yeah. did any mris and all this kind of stuff and she had like two-thirds of her achilles tendon was torn and now she's got all this scar tissue and pain all the time and just even to be able to reduce her pain by even you know 10 or 15 percent would change her life like oh, considerably massively yeah, yeah. so and one of the, one of the things they found with the research was rest was like the worst thing you could do for a tendon interesting but someone has tendon pain the last thing you want them to do is sit down oh, that's all she wants to do yeah i know so you but there's a way that you can load it which will turn the pain off oh. yeah so it's look if anyone wants to find it more i can't make it to our course of course um <laughs> look up uh, ebony rio i think she just released most of her research into the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Mm -hmm. I think it might have just become available. So check her out. Um, she's the one that's done the stuff that's been really, really useful from a clinical point of view. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Journal Ebony. of Sports Medicine. And that's I Ebony think so. Rio. Ebony Rio. Ebony well, with an IE. Yeah. What we'll do is we'll put that into the show notes um, and we'll link that in the, like when we put the post up with your episode. So we'll pop it, make sure we pop that in with the show notes so that everybody can kind of go and find out more about it and have sure. a read. And lastly, like joint mobilization, that's yeah. pretty cool. Again, that's a very kind of contentious issue. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's, I guess it's expanding, expanding what the, the uh, preconceived notion of what the scope of a remedial therapist is. Mm. Um, it's actually the topic I've been asked to present at AMT's conference next year. I'm going to be ah. doing one on, on joint mobilization. So that's, I guess, uh, a sign of the times that the joint mobilization is an area that uh, soft tissue therapists do have a right to practice in. Um, I've run workshops for WMT before and we do our own as well, but it's it's one of those areas that you just you just don't get taught joint mobilization as a manual therapist from coming from a massage background, very rarely in any courses as part of the curriculum. But it's kind of like the other side of soft tissue therapy. You can have, you can have a huge impact on the state and health of soft tissues by by doing joint mobilization. There's neurological pathways that connect with the soft tissues. So by mobilizing joints, you can reduce facilitation or, or, or tension within muscles. Um, but, and conversely, you can do soft tissue work and change the state and health of the, of the joints. So 
it's a way to it's a way for massage therapists to get a greater effect or a more well-rounded effect with what they do without having to learn a whole other you know modality it's a fairly basic thing to learn it's just a number of skills that you apply to set, to a, a set of principles i think it's um it's really interesting that we are trying to sort of become these much more well-rounded therapists and we and you know, we've always, I always remember when I first studied, it was, you know, your holistic and you're, you've got to yeah. the whole person, <clears throat> but don't touch their joints. Yeah, that's you're right. Like, oh, okay. And, and just don't, don't poke too much in their abdomen. Don't poke there too much. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. And then we go and learn how to treat the psoas, like it was just as far into the abdomen as you can get, you know. <laughs> like, and, and then just go thumb deep into the psoas exactly. and yeah, yeah. breathe. That's right. <laughs> and everybody starts crying. I hated so I still hate I still hate if somebody tries to poke my soul as I keep Oh, nobody it. likes that. Yeah. <laughs> Flip out. <laughs> so you and your wife run a, a company, Continuing Education Australia, is that what that's called? That's right. So Caroline and I have um, yeah, it's a, a business that we started um, towards the end of last year. Yeah. Um, and it's she's a physio. Oh, and at, and a musculoskeletal therapist and remedial therapist and a personal trainer and a whole bunch of other stuff that she's done along the way. So she brings um, the physio side and I bring the more manual therapy side and we kind of meet somewhere in the middle. Um, so that's been a really good combination, I think. And um, I've been able to kind of take what I was doing beforehand with um, with the courses that I was running and then bring in just a whole other side of stuff with her, which has been a really good combination. It sounds like it would be heaps of fun, like lots of fun to kind of work with your spouse and, and get to teach all the things that you love and do all that kind of stuff. So um, how have you found being in the continuing education space? Because that's a really different space from clinical practice. Like, and obviously, like, has it, has it, is it tough or is it great or how does it, how's it been going for you? Yeah, it's been fantastic. It's kind of exploded. Um, we've... We, we started out as, okay, I was already running workshops. We decided to team up um, because we both had something different to offer. And we thought, you know, one plus one sometimes equals three. So we'll give that a go. It's kind of equaled five. We've um, managed to get a, a lot more out of it and be able to put a lot more into it than we thought. The interesting thing, I guess, has been that I've, um, it's kind of been an area of a real passion for me to be able to teach in, a, in professional development space because the kind of students that I get, we both get in this space, it's very, very, very dear graduate programs that I've also taught in for years and years because the people that are coming there are typically paying good money to be there. They've given up their spare time and they're there because they really, really want to learn something. Obviously, when you go to a, a TAFE or a college or a university and there's, there's always a selection of students in the room that kind of want to be there, some that really want to be there and some that just definitely don't want to be there. But every single person that comes to a PD workshop has invested something from themselves into that. So, so much more rewarding, I think, for me in that space because the quality of people that are coming are such that they want to get as much out of it. So I tend to want to put a lot more into it, which is great. As far as um, a business kind of side of things, it's been great because I, it's I can it's freed up my time a lot. I, I, I always like to be someone who doesn't have a full-time job. I've had a full-time job twice in my life and wasn't the most rewarding or, or favorite time of my life. Um, I, was, I think I was telling you before we started that every day of the week for me is a different proposition. I, I never know where I'm going to be or what I'm going to be doing. Or like, I kind of know where I'm going to be, but every day I have some variety. So the event of these workshops is uh, one day I'm, I'm teaching in Melbourne, two days later I'm in Perth and then we're in Brisbane and then Sydney and then I'm back in Melbourne again and 
and I'm running a workshop in someone's clinic and then I'm doing some in-service from somewhere else and it's so the variety is great. It's really, really good. So it's yeah. definitely keeping the spice of life for you going. Variety. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's rewind just a little bit because I, mm-hmm. I know that you said right at the beginning when you were sort of 12 or 15 that mm. you had some really good mentors who came into your life and, and all these kinds of things. So let's let's talk about the people who have influenced you in your kind of career and, and in your clinical practice and in your teaching and all those kinds of things. Who have been your key influencers? Okay. Um I've had a number of really inspirational teachers, not bec- not individual people, but more their approaches have kind of motivated me. So I've had people that I've worked for, people that I've studied under have either said, done, or kind of behaved in a certain way that it's made me go, wow, look at that. Like that's, that's really stood out. I remember one teacher in particular, and all the students that I've taught over the years will, will know this story because I pretty much tell it to everyone. <laughs> but I had a, a, a teacher tell me once, or I mentioned in a class once when he was talking about chronic pain, is that as a, as a massage therapist, as a manual therapist of any kind, or any, any kind of health practitioner, we've got the unique ability to, to take away somebody's suffering, take away their pain, and there's no greater reward than that from the work that you do. It doesn't matter how much money you get paid or the kind of prestige or letters after your name, none of that really matters. If you can take the quality of somebody's life and improve it, that is all the difference that you can make in the world. And I thought, well, that for some reason stuck in my head. And to this day, I can't remember which teacher told me it, but the, the, the word stuck with me. So I think... For me, it's been kind of more of a collection of moments than people. Mm-hmm. Certain people have had an impact in certain areas uh, and, other in other, and others in other areas. So I think it's – look, I've had a, lots of different teachers over the years and people that have made a difference, but it's more been um, things they've said or done than individual people. That's amazing. Again, one more inspirational quote. <laughs> There'll be more. Coming out, you're just like, boom, there's another one. Oh, my gosh. I literally have like seven already like marked down. So you're going to get like seven T-shirts, I'm imagining. I like round numbers. We're going for 10. We're going for 10. <laughs> Excellent. So tell me a couple of things. Um, what rubs you the wrong way currently about the massage industry? Yeah, okay. Um, elitism is one. Mm. Yep. So people that get very hung up on their qualifications and get a little bit, okay, you can't learn this. You're not supposed to do, do this. You're only such and such. You haven't got this qualification. You're not registered with this particular board. I hate that. I think that everybody has the ability to help people. Mm-hmm. And the more knowledge, experience, and education that we get, the better for everybody. So, yes, um, certain levels of training don't necessarily have the anatomical background or whatever it might be to learn certain things. So why not learn it? Like, the qualification shouldn't be a limiting factor. If you want to learn something else, if you want to know something else, then you go and learn it. You find a way. There's... There's no one in the world that isn't accessible to every single person on the planet. Everything's on the internet. If you can't find it on the internet, you can go and find somebody who knows it and they can teach it to you. So I think that yeah, elitism and around um, titles and academia annoys me. I've worked in academia most of my working life and seen it a lot and it drives me nuts. So that would probably be one big thing, yeah. Elitism. So mm. there is a question on the tip of my tongue, but I don't know if I should, if I should let it out. Please. Um, how do you feel about the proposed certification process that our one of our national associations is planning to put in place? How does that – have you kind of got a – Yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around that 100%. I think I've got a bit of an idea, and I think the idea of holding people accountable is great. Mm-hmm. So if this certification came online in that everybody had to be a part of it and everyone had to go through that process, I think at the end of the day that could only produce better quality practitioners. 
hoping that those people who weren't up to scratch to meet that requirement weren't pushed out the door. I think everybody should be given an opportunity to, to step up and we all should be trying to do that all the time. So as a concept, I think it's good. I think I need to find out more about it to know whether or not it's actually going to be a really useful or viable thing yet. Hopefully it, it, it does good things for us. Yeah, and I, I, I know it's um, rubbed a few people the wrong way. Um, huh, I get to say that twice <laughs> in one episode. It's always good. Um, and it's it's just it's interesting to get people's thoughts on that kind of elevation of practice. And I I do I want to see it be this inclusive process, and I'm hoping that it will be because like I don't I don't know. Like I've spoken to Paul, and I've spoken you know, to other kind of board members of the WMT mm-hmm. and they're very, being very kind of cagey about how it's kind of going to go. Um, and because I think, don't think they 100% know yet how it's yeah. going to play out. My understanding too is that it's a little bit up in the air still and they're trying to work out the nuts and bolts. And I understand there's a lot of opposition to it, but I think that like anything that people don't know about, they get afraid of. So, you know, fear is a huge motivator to push away from stuff. So I think we should all be trying to find out exactly what WMT are trying to do what the benefits are, if they outweigh the, the, the negative side of things, then, you know, what's the harm? Exactly. And it just it's interesting that you sort of go, well, you know, you don't want people to have this elitist kind of concept, but you also do, we do need to have that kind of level of professionalism within the, within the industry that helps us kind of, you know, separate ourselves from the potential um, less than credible kind of parts of the industry. So it's, and it's, again, it's not to sort of discredit those people because in all honesty, and I mean, I think I've actually said this before on a show, like I think that there is an absolute place for everyone in this industry or in, within, and, and also to a degree, I think that, you know, I, some sex workers, I'm like, you guys, more power to you because I don't want to do that. (laughs) There's a market for it, I guess. But I, again, like I've had a client, I, I used to have a client who was a prominent brothel owner um, and he would come and we would talk about regulatory kind of stuff and all these things. And he was as outraged as I was as a massage therapist that there were these kind of underhanded massage parlors doing, he's like, I pay tens of thousands of dollars to get my license. I yeah. jump through all the hoops every year. I go for my police checks. I do all these things and these people are just doing it out in the back room. And he goes, yeah. and it, it, it outraged him as much as it outraged massage therapists. And so I see that we have this, there's an opportunity for a common ground to be forged here where two industries that seem at, a, at, you know, at odds could potentially come together maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm like really <laughs> out there stuff now. But the idea is, is the same, right? Two different industri- industries with the same problem. So exactly. regulation is important. And a lot of people go well, bark on about this thing about we, we've got to be ARPA, to be ARPA registered. Well, yes and no. I think a lot of people that are registered with ARPA um, feel a little bit suffocated by some of the regulations that they put under and it's actually held back their professions in a lot of ways. So, yeah, there's benefits for it from a professional recognition point of view with insurance companies and, and health agencies and things. But really, who are we trying to benefit here? It's the, it's the patients. So mm. if there's something we can do within our industry that's going to raise the awareness of good quality professionals, good, like whatever yeah. it is. That's whether it's WMT's proposed thing with the certification or not, whether it's something else, who knows. But we've got to try stuff. So. And again, 
That brings us right back around to practice-based evidence. <laughs> exactly. In a beautiful kind of circle. <laughs> test and it. Doing some do really it. Test good it. Do it. Professional development and keeping up that love and passion and and that that desire to keep growing and have your like get knowledge and and not let the industry kind of just die a slow and painful death of ignorance. exactly. You're either moving forward. Right? Exactly. Moving forward, <laughs> moving forward, or you get busy living or get busy dying. Correct. <laughs> so, Sean, thank you yes. so much for your time today. Let me let's find out where people can connect with you more. Um, I wanna I want everyone to kind of come and do at least one of your courses or go and see you at the AAMT conference or I, I, I think that you've got so much knowledge to give and I want I want people to know how they can find you. So where can we connect with you? Where can my listeners find out more about you and where can we come and do one of your courses? Sure. So we've got Continuing Education Australia, which is ce.com, ceaustralia.com. ceaustralia.com. ceaustralia.com is the website with all of our workshops on it. Um, for those who aren't living in an area where I'm running workshops or where we're running workshops and, and can't get to it, um, I'm presenting at next year's WMT conference uh, 2017 and I'm also presenting to Congress, which I think is April next year, and all of ANTA's nationals, which go from Perth, Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne next year as well. You're basically doing a national tour next year. <laughs> Pretty much. I've just got to get into the Myotherapy Association's conference and I'm done. Covered the, all the bases. <laughs> you got everybody. That's right. You pinned everyone down. Yeah, oh. you cannot hide from me. I'm out there. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Sean. It's been super cool to chat with you um, and always lovely to catch up. And um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Christine. Thanks for listening to Rub the Wrong Way. We'd love to connect with you at our website, www.rubtherightway.com, where you can download your free copy of The Hustle Method, Six Steps to a Kick-Ass Massage Biz, or on Facebook, Rub the Wrong Way Podcast, or on Twitter, at Rub Wrong. This is a We Are Podcast show. We Are Podcast is Australia's premium gathering of current and future podcasters. If you aren't a member yet, you should go and check us out at wearepodcast.com and click on the Members Live Here button right in the center of the page. Included in your membership are monthly accountability sessions with me. That's a tongue twister. Monthly State of the Union podcasting webinars as well as free podcast hosting for the rest of your membership life with audio boom we not only cover everything podcasting but we also cover every other aspect of online business around your podcast so if you want to make money and grow your influence using a podcast get your first month for only 19 dollars using the promo code i am podcast at checkout also for peace of mind you can leave whenever you like uh in case you've had enough of us so uh go in and check it out we are podcast.com and click on the members live here button <laughs>